not a fan of standing above everybody. My children were wondering if I was going to be like the pastor in Pollyanna and walk up to the, the podium above everybody and just start with, Death comes unexpectedly. <laughs> so yes, I did. There you go, kids. All right. Genesis chapter 28 this morning. Genesis chapter 28. Now that you're nice and awake. Some of those songs were a little slow at the end there. So, you know, had to keep everybody's heartbeat going. The title of my message this morning is, Where is God? Where is God? When we come to these times of crisis, it's easy for us to wonder where God is. We see a lot of unrest in our nation today. There are many opinions, viewpoints, and ideas seeking to be heard, and we as believers often get caught up in the midst of these struggles. When injustice occurs, we are often asked this question, where is God? You're a, you're a God follower, right? So where is he? How can he allow these things to happen? We may find ourselves feeling like we must walk on eggshells or that we are traveling through a verbal minefield as we try to navigate many different conversations from different friends with different experiences and perspectives. It's easy for us who may have enjoyed a measure of health, a measure of success, a measure of lack of social injustice, to view some who call these things into view with a pious and better-than-them attitude. It's easy for us to look for ways that we can disagree with someone instead of finding the ways that we can connect with them. It's easy for us to push people away and when we're uncomfortable, instead of reaching out to understand them better. Have you struggled with that? Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 through 38 says, when he, speaking of Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. No matter what political opinion or social sector we find ourselves intermingling with, we must look at those involved with the eyes of Christ. When you see these people on all sides, do you see enemies? Do you see people to avoid? Do you see people who don't deserve your time? Or do you, like Christ, see them as they truly are, harassed and helpless and shepherdless. This word, esculimeno, means to trouble. That's where we get harassed, to trouble or to bother or to annoy. It's translated as harassed, distressed, or weary. The next word, eremenoi, from the root word, ripto, means to throw to the ground, to cast down. It's translated as scattered or dispirited and helpless. Is that how you see the lost around you? All around us, 
are real people with real pain and real problems that, yes, need the saving power of the gospel, but they need the hands of compassion as well. Christ, as our perfect example, was not only preaching the coming kingdom, but his compassion drove him to meet the physical and emotional needs of those around him as well. In all of these struggles, physical health, economic uncertainty, social injustice, we must not cower in fear, just trying to keep our heads down, hoping we don't get injured in any way. Nor should we ignore with complacency the plight of those around us simply because we do not understand or experience their trouble. Nor should we lash out defensively as if we have nothing more to learn when it comes to being the hands and feet of Christ. Rather, we must look with the eyes of our Savior on the lost and broken world with compassion. Not merely a compassion that looks at them and pities them and walks away, but rather a compassion like Christ's that reaches out and seeks to heal. While not everything being promoted today is biblically accurate or good, that does not give us the right to be like the one who looks in the mirror and goes away unchanged. Are we actively reaching out to those in need? Are we actively being the hands and feet of Christ? Or are we expecting someone else to do it because it's not my gift? While we may not have the responsibility to meet the goals of a man-made agenda, we do have the responsibility to be like our compassionate Savior and engage the world around us with more than just actless words. So the question they ask is valid. Where is God? Where is God this morning? If you know your theology, the answer is right here. Right? Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. We know that we have the Holy Spirit who is living inside of us. He is God. Dwelling in us, everywhere we go, he is with us. Where is God? Same question be asked of where is the church? Where is God? He's everywhere. He's fulfilling his promises. He's working out his plan. He's searching out the sinner and he's sanctifying the sheep. As we come to our passage in Genesis this morning, I've been gripped by this idea of God and his presence for several weeks, even before all of this stuff started happening. This question of where is God has been in my mind as I've looked at this passage here in Genesis chapter 28. As we see this short narrative in the life of Jacob of this dream, we see God revealing himself to Jacob this, and, and, and revealing this very simple truth that no matter where he goes, he's with him. This is a truth that we need this morning and a truth that we need to be sharing during these times of turmoil. Where is God? So the big idea this morning, I think we've all gotten on board with Eric's process here. The big idea this morning is that because God is all present, his faithfulness is not bound 
by our physical location or our spiritual proximity to him. Instead, his sovereign act of drawing near to us should result in our awe, obedience, and gratitude to him. I'll say that one more time. These are actually our slides, but my slide person left. So, The big idea. Because God is all present, his faithfulness is not bound by our physical location or our spiritual proximity to him. Instead, his sovereign act of drawing near to us should result in our awe, obedience, and gratitude to him. So we look at this passage this morning, we see Jacob who has left his home. We know the circumstances that are going on are not good. He and his mother have deceived his father, taken the blessing that his father intended for Esau, even though, of course, we do know in God's perfect plan, that blessing was going to be upon Jacob. But that does not give Jacob and Rebekah the right to do wrong, right? And so we have this turmoil. We have an angry brother who literally wants to kill him, has said so much in his tent, and it, it got back to his, his mother, Rebecca, and, uh, and she goes to um, Isaac under somewhat false pretenses still and says, you know, these, these wives that Esau has, they're not good, they're not good, they vex us. We need to make sure that, that Jacob gets a wife from, from my homeland, from Haran. And so in all of this, we did see that, that, that uh, Isaac gives Jacob another blessing before he leaves and he's, he's off now. He's leaving his home. He's leaving the land of promise. He's leaving everything that he's known his entire life and going to another place because of his own actions. And so everything that he knows and loves is being torn away from him. And he's begun this journey and he comes to this place that we later find out is named Bethel. And he comes to this place and he's, he's tired. It's evening time. It's, he, there's no more travel going to be going on that day. And so he lays down and goes to sleep. And he had his, this really weird dream. And he sees this ladder or stairway. I was joking with, uh, with Andy that I was going to have him play Stairway to Heaven when I started preaching. But he's not here, so we got out of that. But uh, we have, he has this, this stairway, or, which it can, be, it can be translated ladder or stairway. So this stairway or this ladder going from earth to heaven, and he sees these angels ascending and descending on it, and he sees God, uh, depending on the translation you use, either it says God standing next to him or God standing at the top of the ladder. It's kind of a weird, I hate Hebrew, man. Hebrew is such a weird language. Uh, but, uh, but God is there, right? And God speaks to him, and God promises him things. And Jacob wakes up. And the words that we read here when Jacob wakes up is what has been resonating in my mind this whole time. He says down here in verse number 13. Oh, I'm sorry, verse number 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. 
Jacob comes to this point in his life where he has his own encounter with God. He has an encounter with the Almighty. He has an encounter with the God of his father, Isaac, the God of his father, a grandfather, Abraham. No doubt he's heard about God. Um, it, it kind of makes you wonder how much he's heard about God, given the family dynamics that we've seen so far. Uh, but he, he seems to at least have an understanding of who he is. And, and he understands that this is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. And now he is having this interaction with this God outside of the land of promise. Probably most of what he knows about their interactions with God is having to do with the land of promise. If you remember when Abraham sent his servant to get a wife for Isaac, he said, don't let him leave the land of promise. This was a very special place. This was a place where they had communed with God, where God has blessed them. And so Jacob is leaving this place and he comes and he rests and he has this dream. He has this encounter with God and he's surprised. He's shocked. And he says, I didn't even know God was here. He didn't have our theology books to let him know what omnipresent means. If you're not familiar with that, that's the, that's the theological term for all present. I know, why can't you just say all present? I don't know. Omnipresent, right? And that's the first thing that we see that I want us to look at this morning is that God is all present. Yeah, we know that theologically, do we not? If I were to ask you, uh, give me the three omni-theological terms, most of you probably could do that, right? Say them out. It's, he is omni-present, omni-niscient, yeah, omni-niscient, um, omni-potent, right, right? So yeah, I, I know, I was emphasizing the omni. So we've got omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, Right? And we know that those are all powerful, all knowing, and all present or everywhere, right? He didn't have those theological books. He hadn't, he hadn't had that training necessarily. And here he is in this land that is outside of what he recognizes as the place of blessing of God. And he's shocked. He's surprised that God is there. If God interacted with us the way that he interacted with Jacob, would we be surprised where God is too? Would we be surprised that he's at our office, that he's in our home, that he's riding in the car with us? Where would we be surprised to have an encounter with God? Jacob is here in this place that he later calls Bethel. And he has this interaction, this encounter with God. And he comes to an understanding through that, that God is always with him. God is always with him and he is always with us. Jacob did not expect to meet God, but yet God was always with him. Several verses Many of you are probably familiar with most, if not all of these, but just a reminder what scripture tells us about this omnipresent God, this God who is always with us, no matter where we go. Maybe we need to be reminded of that this morning. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, the Great Commission says, 
And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command to you, all that I have commanded you. And good luck. Is that how it ends? No, it doesn't end like that. He didn't just say, go do this and have fun. I hope it works out for you, right? He says, go do this. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We reference the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. If you remember, I won't go, we won't turn there, but John chapter 17, Christ is talking about, or Christ is praying that God would send the Spirit. And he promised the Spirit would come. He said, I can't, I can't if I don't go, the Spirit won't come. And it's better for you that the Spirit comes. Because he will be with you. Whereas I, in fleshly form, cannot be with everyone all the time. But yet God, through the Holy Spirit, can. He is with us wherever we go. Hebrews 13, 5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and content with what you have. Be content with what you have. For he, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's quoting Deuteronomy there. I will never leave you or forsake you. Then probably one you're very familiar with, Psalm chapter 139, verses seven through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall uphold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and light and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. God is always with us. That can be both a comfort and a warning. Can it not? In times of turmoil and struggle and hardship and heartache, it can be a a very present help. It can be a solace for our, our hearts and our minds to know that God is there. He hasn't left you. He hasn't forsaken you. But yet God is there when we choose not to live the way he has called us to live. He sees even the thoughts in our head. He hears the words that we say. He sees the things that we do when no one else is around. He's always with us. Not only is he always with us, but Jacob was reassured that God is continually working out his plan. This omnipresent God is continually working out his plan, and it doesn't matter where we are because he is sovereign and he can do it. Because his plan doesn't re- doesn't need us. Thankfully he uses us. But he doesn't need us. It doesn't rely on us and our ability to do something or be something. It relies on him because he's the only one that can do it. And here we see God speaking to Joseph 
And again, he gives him these promises that he's given to Abraham and to Isaac. Look in verse 13, it says, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So he gives them assurance that this promise is still for you. This promise is still for you, even though, quite frankly, Jacob deserves none of it. Any of the patriarchs so far deserve what God has promised to them. We've got liars and cheaters. We got one, you know, deciding he wants to give the blessing to somebody he knows he's not supposed to. Not really. None of them deserve it. But God chose them. In spite of who they are, in spite of their sin, in spite of their frailty, God chose them. And it's the promise is not reliant on who Jacob is. It's reliant on who God is. He says, I am giving you this promise. But not only is he reaffirming the promise here, but he gives him more promises. He says, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Do you think God knew what was going on in Jacob's mind? Do you think God knew the fears that were probably going on in Jacob's mind? As he's leaving everything that he knows, going to, yes, family, but he doesn't know them, more than likely. We don't have anything in Scripture that tells us that, he, that they've ever met. Um, if you keep reading, it doesn't look like they've ever met before. And everything he's ever known, he's leaving, and it's not under good situation. And so surely he has fear about what's going to happen, if he's even going to make it back home someday. And yet God gives him more promises. He says, look, Jacob, I am with you here and I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to leave you. These promises that I'm promising to you, I am not going to leave you. I will be with you until everything is complete that I have said that I will do. And he promises not only that he is with him, that he will stay with him. He gives the same promises to us. Did you know that? Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, Paul's talking, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's not done. He didn't just save us and leave us to try to figure things out. He's still working. He is continually working out his plan. He was doing so for Jost, for Jacob, and he's doing so for us. He is, he is working out. He's staying with Jacob. He, there's a whole lot of time that's going to pass here. And it's not going to be all, you know, sunshine and roses. But so God says, I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to make sure that you get back 
to this place, to this land of promise that you get back to your family. I will be with you the entire time because I have promised this. I'm going to continue to work out my plan. And even as he did with Jacob, he does with us as he continues to work out our sanctification until Christ returns later on in Philippians chapter two, verses 12 to 13. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He doesn't leave us alone. He's constantly working. He is with us and he's continually working out his plan. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 says, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Do you hear that? May he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Aren't you glad that God does not just save us and leave us to figure it out on our own? We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to good works, which he has before ordained that we would walk in them. He has a plan for you, for your sanctification, to make you continually more like Jesus Christ. And he is not leaving us and he's continuing to work it out. He is all present. Do you ever stop to think about the fact that God being with us, in us, He might be using you to create an encounter with somebody else for him. You know, we see in this passage, God having this encounter with Jacob, and it's one that's miraculous, right? It's this dream where God is speaking to him verbally in the dream, right? And of course, in Hebrews, it tells us that God spoke in dreams in time past. It was one of the ways that he did it. But now he's spoken to us through Jesus Christ, his son. And we have the Holy Spirit and we have the message of Jesus Christ, his son. Do we think about the fact that our encounters with other people are God-ordained encounters? Or again, do we just see them as a nuisance? Do we just see them as a problem? Do we just see them as getting in the way? Or are they God-ordained encounters where God is with us, reaching to someone else through us? Are we reaching? Not only is he all-present, omnipresent, but his faithfulness is not bound by our actions, but by his sovereign plan. Point number two, his faithfulness is not bound by our actions, but by his sovereign plan. Where is Jacob? He's left his home. He hasn't had a lot of good actions lately, has he? Deceit to the point of putting things on, smelling. And and, I mean, as far as you could go to trick someone to get 
what you want. Again, not, not necessarily a great person. In fact, he's, he's in a place where he doesn't think that God would ever be. He is surprised by God. But yet God is there. God's plan and his faithfulness is not bound by our actions, but by his sovereign plan. No matter where we are. You know, I think about others in scripture who have been outside of the promised land, outside of the place where of God's blessing, who have chosen good and who have chosen wrong. And in each of those instances, God was there as well. And in each of those instances, he was working out his plan. I think, I think of Jonah, right? Good example, bad example. Bad example, right? God says, go to Nineveh. He says, mm, no, uh, I'm going to go this way. <laughs> you've, met, you've met the people in Nineveh, right? I, I, like, my, I like living. I'm going to go to Tarshish, right? And God knows exactly where he is. He sends the storm and Jonah eventually gets cast overboard and he's in the belly of a fish and God knows where he is. And he's there with him. And three days later, he finally gives in, spits him out on dry land, goes to Nineveh and preaches, and the people repent. That was God's plan. And he made it happen, didn't he? Didn't matter where Jonah ran. Didn't matter whether Jonah wanted to, wanted to obey or not. That was God's plan. And it was going to happen. I think of Daniel and the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's their Babylonian names. Not willing to give in. That's the good example, right? Here they are, away from the promised land, away from Israel. They've been dragged to this pagan country. Nobody knows where they are. Nobody knows what they're doing. They have every opportunity to give in. Every opportunity to just do what feels good, to do what doesn't get them killed. And yet, what do they do? They say, no, we're not going to eat of this stuff that was offered to idols. No, we're not going to bow down to this golden image. And God protected them. In the first instance, he made them look a whole lot better than anybody else. In the second instance, obviously we know Daniel wasn't there in the second one, but he literally saved them from the fire. Not even the smell of smoke on their garments. Because they chose to obey. Even when they weren't where God is. Because God is everywhere. And his plan is not dependent upon where we are. That's physically. But his plan is not dependent on where we are spiritually either, is it? Ephesians chapter 2 tells us something very interesting about where we're at spiritually. 
says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We have no ability in and of ourselves to choose right. A dead man has no power. Not only that, but it goes further and it says, and you were not just dead in sin, but you were slaves to sin. You had to do whatever your father, the devil, tells you to do. But God, who is rich in mercy, with the great love with which he loved us, reached down to us who were his enemies and saved us. Not because of anything that we did or said or could ever do, but because of his plan. His plan is not dependent on us. It's dependent on him. Even when we are not living the way that we're supposed to. We usually call that backslidden, right? That's the term I heard growing up, backslidden. Even when we are failing to be what God has called us to be, he is reaching out. He doesn't leave us alone. Revelation 3.19 says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Those I love, I reprove and discipline. Just because we may not be where God wants us to be right now doesn't mean that God's plan is already just gone. Because his plan doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on where we are physically and it doesn't depend on where we are spiritually. Because he's going to fulfill his plan. The question is, are we going to be a part of it? Are we going to be a part of it? Are we going to be a part of it at the beginning by accepting and believing what he has declared to us about Jesus Christ? Are we going to be a part of it by choosing to live a life that is obedient to what he has called us to be? So that when he does reprove and rebuke us, that he, when he does discipline us, that we repent and turn back to him? If not, he won't use this very long. But he will get his plan done because he is sovereign. The omnipresent God is everywhere. He is, his faithfulness is not bound by our actions, but is bound by his plan. And because of that, point number three, he is worthy. Because of that, he's worthy. We look at Jacob's response here. He, he realizes that this, in his mind, this is a special place. I don't know that he really even still completely understood everything that God had said to him. He said, I'm going to be with you wherever you go. I am everywhere. And yet, even in that, he, he looks at this place where he has interacted with God and he, and he sets it up as, as a holy place. In verse 18, he says, So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, which literally means house of God. But the, but the city, uh, the name of the city before was Luz. 
And then verse 30, then Jacob made a vow. And Jacob made a vow. See, there was an effect that this interaction with God had on Jacob. When he understood that God was with him, when he understood that God was still working out a plan that was going to bless him, when he understood these things, he had a reaction. Of course, his first reaction was earlier when we saw he was surprised. He was surprised that God was there. Um, and, and it says... Uh, It says that he was afraid in verse 17. He was afraid because he had had this interaction with God. So many people in the Old Testament specifically were afraid when they had an interaction with God. I can't help but wonder how flippantly do we take God sometimes? You know, we've grown up in... Most of us, America, we've grown up in probably many, if not most of us, fairly good lives. And, uh, and God, maybe to you, has been more of this, you know, nebulous thing. Do you have a healthy fear of God this morning? I'm not saying, do you just go at home and you cower and you're, in your room and just think, oh no, oh God's gonna destroy me. That goes against everything that we read in scripture, right? But do you have a healthy fear of God? Do you live your life in such a way that you understand what he said back there in Revelation 3, that he will reprove and discipline his children? Or do you have a view of God that maybe leaves that part out? Do you have a healthy fear of who God is? You should, because he's worthy of it. He deserves it. He is worthy of our fear. And and I I actually put it a little bit differently. I I have it in here in my notes as he is worthy of our awe. He's worthy of our awe because it continues there. And it says, and he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this, the gate of of heaven. He had a high and exalted view of God. Again, we don't know what he was taught from Isaac about God. Scripture doesn't tell us. But when he had this interaction with God, he gained a high and lofty view of this God of Abraham and Isaac and now himself. And so God is worthy of his awe. And he's worthy of our awe as well. What is your view of God this morning? Is he just somebody that meets the needs that you have when you have them? Is he just the person that you run to when things are in trouble? But any other time, you know, things are good, God, I don't need you. He's worthy of our awe. He's worthy of us standing before him or kneeling before him or prostrate before him and saying, you are God alone. How majestic are you? When's the last time you took time to be in awe of God? 
Revelation 4, 9 through 11 says, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast down their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will, they existed and were created. We've seen that in Genesis. God is the creator and therefore the owner of everything. The first reason we should be in awe is simply because of that. He is worthy of awe because he is creator. Revelation 5, 11 through 12 says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. He's worthy of our awe because he created us. He's worthy of our awe because he redeemed us. Have you taken the time to be in awe of your God? He's worthy of He's worthy of our awe, not only that, but he's worthy of our submission. Verse 20, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. I think you could read this a couple different ways. I think you could read this as him saying, all right, here's the deal. If you do that, then I will trust you. Maybe. I, th- I think you could, given what we know about Jacob so far, I think you could legitimately look at what he says there in that perspective. I think you could also look at it in this perspective. All right, if that's what you're promising me, then you will be my God. Because God just said he was going to do all those things, did he not? So I don't know which one of those hearts Jacob had. I don't know if it was just automatic submission or if it was conditional submission. If you were to ask me, I'd probably lean towards the the conditional submission. But there was submission. There was an understanding of who God was and a willingness for him to submit to him. He is worthy of our awe and he is worthy of our submission. I quoted earlier Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Are we walking in them? Are we submitting day by day, moment by moment to what we know God wants us to do? We're not perfect. I'm not perfect. My wife can tell you that. My kids can tell you that. Nobody's perfect. But are we repenting when we need to repent? 
Are we seeking to walk in the way that God has called us to walk? And even in these times of turmoil, these times of trouble, where we know in our heart that there are things that we should be doing to be the hands and feet of Christ. Are we doing it? Or is that somebody else's job? The all-present God who is with us wherever we go is worthy of our submission. He is worthy of us obeying that call. That call to our neighbor, that call to our coworker, call to a family member. He's worthy of that. Have you ever thought about that? You ever think about it in those terms? That obeying God was just giving him the glory and the honor that he's due? Think about that. Obedience to God is one of the ways that we glorify him. It's not just about singing. It's not just about giving. It's about obeying. Obedience is bringing glory to God. He's worthy of our submission. And lastly, he is worthy of our gratitude. He's worthy of our gratitude. It ends in verse 22. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. He recognizes his need to be grateful to this God who has promised him everything. Do we not have a lot to be grateful for? Just in salvation, do we not have a lot to be grateful for? In our sanctification, we have a lot to be grateful for. Those two things outside of the myriad of blessings that we have simply being a part of a free nation. We have that to be grateful for. Are we grateful for it? Or do we think we deserve it? Jacob could have assumed that he deserved it. After all, Isaac gave him a blessing for it, right? Isaac said, this is going to happen to you. And he kind of probably knew it was passed down, you know, it had been promised to Abraham, it had been promised to Isaac, and now God is promising it to him. Of course, of course, I deserve this. But he was grateful for it. Do we have a heart of gratitude for our Lord this morning? Because he's worthy of it. He's worthy of our gifts. He's worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our gratitude. Where is God this morning? He's right here. He's meeting with us this morning. He's going to walk out of this building with us this afternoon. He's going to go home with us. He's going to go out to eat with us. He's going to go to work with us tomorrow if you're going into work. He's going to go to the store with you. Everywhere you go, God is with you. Are we living in a way that acknowledges that? Jacob learned a very valuable theological truth in this passage that God 
is always with him. That God is always working out his plan. No matter where we are, physically or spiritually, God is working out his plan. And he will not stop until it is accomplished. And because of that, he is worthy of our awe, our submission, and our gratitude. Father, we thank you. That nothing good in us depends on us. Because, Lord, you know that if it depended on us, it would never be good. We are by nature children of wrath. And yet you loved us enough to send your son to die on the cross for us. To offer redemption as a free gift. Lord, we come to you this morning, this afternoon in awe of who you are and what you have done. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live lives of submission because you deserve it. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you for everything that you've done and the things that you will continue to do, whether they are things that we look at as hard or things that we look at as easy. You were bringing them into our lives for a purpose, and I pray that you would help us to be changed by them. Help us to truly understand what it means to serve an omnipresent God. Keep yourself in our hearts and our minds as we go forward from this day. Help us to not be complacent. Help us to not be just okay with where we're at in our relationship with you. Help us to strive for better closeness with you. Help us to work in understanding who you are. Reveal yourself to us in a way that you never have before. Perhaps not through dreams as you did Uh, for Jacob, but through your word. Illumine your word to our hearts and our minds as we read it, as we meditate on it, as we seek to understand who you are, and then help us to obey it better in the days ahead. Until you come, Lord, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.